Hey, good morning, Trinity Church. How are you guys? Awesome. My name is Jared Mantagna, and I'm the local outreach and young adults pastor. And from time to time, I get the distinct privilege of filling in here and teaching God's word. And so uh, I'm excited to be with you this morning uh, to dive in and see what the Lord has to speak to us. So here's the thing. You're going to need a Bible, and you're going to need to turn to 1 John uh, chapter 2. And this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, 1 John 2 verses 28 uh, through 310. And so many of you probably never heard of the name Catherine St. Clair. Uh, she's not a millionaire or a billionaire. She's not a famous athlete. She's not a singer, an actress. She's not a social media influencer. Um, St. Clair is your average 56-year-old female who was given a gift for her birthday by her three sisters and her one brother and it was one of those uh, DNA test kits to see about your heritage and to see about your family and your background. And so she was given this on her uh, 54th birthday by her siblings to do the test and then to mail it in and to see about her background. Turns out that the test revealed that uh, she was only related to her brother as a half-brother. He was only her half-brother, and the man that she grew up thinking was her father really wasn't her father at all. Because of this, St. Clair joined a growing group of nearly 27% of people who take a DNA test like this to discover they actually have family they never knew about. According to St. Clair, she said, I looked into, into the mirror and I started crying. I've taken for granted my whole life that what I was looking at in the mirror was part my mother and part my dad. And now that half of that person I was looking at in the mirror, I didn't know who that was. Eventually, St. Clair would discover who her biolog biological dad was. And in the process of learning about her real biological father's family, she started a, a face, Facebook group for people who had similar uh, circumstances. That number of people has grown to be over 1,000 people as a part of her Facebook group. And they meet regularly to share stories and to find healing uh, in this journey together. I share that story with you this morning because the passage that we're looking at in 1 John this morning is somewhat of a spiritual 23andMe DNA test. How many of you have taken that, by the way? Any hands? Okay, awesome. It's a spiritual 23andMe DNA test. It's a test that John is laying out to his audience to differentiate who the genuine, authentic children of God are and who the children of God are not. And John is going to highlight, he's going to lay out for us three distinct qualities of those who are authentic children of God. He's going to tell us in this passage that authentic children of God, they persevere in the faith. Secondly, authentic children of God, as they are persevering in the faith, they prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, authentic children of God, while they wait, they practice righteousness. So as we go through this passage, I want to encourage you to ask the question, what does 
this test reveal to me about my relationship to the Father? Does the test reveal that I'm his child? Or is it possible that I'm someone else's child? So let's pray, and then we'll jump into God's word together. Sound good? Father, I thank you for this epistle, this letter of John, written to us that we may know that we have eternal life, Lord, not through our own effort or our own striving, but by, by believing in Jesus, the Son of God, who you gave to take away sin and to uh, break, Lord, the works of the enemy. Father, as we dive into your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this passage. Lord, it is some uh, tough things that we're going to look at this morning. And so I just pray that you would make uh, the, the sense for us, that, Lord, you would show us what you're saying, what you're not saying. And, Lord, that we would walk out of here, that my brothers and sisters, as they walk out of here, they would have assurance beyond assurance. They would have hope. They would have confidence. They would have boldness that when Christ comes back, they could face him, Lord, with courage because, Father, they kept the faith. They stayed to the end. They fought the good fight. They finished the race. They held on to the faith, Lord. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, your guys' Bibles are open. First John chapter 2, starting in verse 28, John writes this. He says, so now, little children, Remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So John begins this portion of his letter by addressing the original recipients as little children. John, he is the only New Testament writer who uses this term to address his audience as such, and he uses it nine different times in this very short letter. And it's really, it's a beautiful term of endearment, isn't it? Keep in mind, John, when he is writing this letter, he is at the tail end of his life. He is anywhere, scholars tell us, he is anywhere between 80 to 90 years old when he wrote this. And so it's this beautiful picture of this older, wiser, seasoned saint and father in the faith exhorting his spiritual brothers and sisters, and he's exhorting them. What is he exhorting them towards? Well, we're told here in verse 28, he is exhorting these brothers and sisters to remain in Jesus. I don't know if you highlight in your Bibles, but if you highlight in your Bibles, if you mark in your Bibles, you might want to underline that phrase, remain in him, or as some of your translations might say, abide in him. The word remain or abide, it means to continue in, to stay in the place one is occupying. Last week, Pastor Doug did a great job explaining this concept of remaining or abiding. If you recall, he used uh, the example of occupying and staying put in the movie theater while you wait until the end credits so that you could watch the post credit scene. Another example of this is our beautiful, lovely young adults right here. On Thursday nights, we start Bible study roughly around 7.30, never on time at 7, young adults. And uh, we go from like 7.30 to 1 in the morning. They occupy M105 to about 1 in the morning. They stay put there. Yeah, yeah. In layman's term, in layman's term, to remain in Jesus, listen carefully, is to 
continue to follow Jesus and to stick by his side to the very end. Now, this is the sixth time in the previous five verses that John exhorts these believers to remain in Jesus. It's as if John, the elder here, he is saying, I'm really, really, really serious about this. I'm very serious about this, you guys. I'm really serious that you understand the importance and seriousness of remaining in and continuing, continuing in Jesus and following him to the very end. Many of you parents know this, that when you want your kids to really understand the gravity or serious of one of your commands, what do you do? You repeat yourself, right? Have you had the blessed privilege of doing that, parents? Now listen, you really need to understand this. Clean up your room. I'm re really serious. And you repeat yourself. That's what John is doing. He is repeating himself because he wants the audience, he wants us to understand this is really serious stuff that he's talking about remaining in Christ. Why does John exhort these little children to remain in him? Why is it so serious? Well, look at what John says here at the tail end of verse 28. He says, so that they could have confidence and not be ashamed at Jesus's coming. At Jesus's coming. The coming that John is referring to here, of course, is the second coming of Jesus. The theological term for this is the perusa. It's the perusa of Jesus. And the perusa, it speaks of the imminent, literal, physical, visible return of Jesus from heaven to earth. Now the question that probably many of you have wondered at one time or another, as you have heard about the reality that Jesus is coming back one day is the million dollar question, when? When? Guess what? The Bible says it will come at an hour we do not know. It will come at an hour we do not know. And I believe the Bible says that so that we will always be spiritually ready for Jesus' return. Matthew 25 says that when Jesus returns at his second coming, he is going to come and he is going to separate the sheep from the goats in judgment, that he is gonna separate the tares, the false, the imitators from the wheat, from the real, the authentic, the genuine, and that the sheep, the wheat, are gonna be gathered in and they will enter into his kingdom, whereas the goats and the tares will be cast into eternal judgment. John is saying that that day is going to come one day. And John is saying, because we don't know when that day or that event will be, we need to be prepared for that day so that when Jesus does come back, we will be able to face him boldly and unashamedly. That we will be able to face him as he is. And the only way you're gonna be able to do that according to John and throughout the scriptures is if you remain, if you abide in Christ. David Guzik a very well-known pastor uh, who has a wonderful commentary online says this about being pre pre prepared for the perusa, for the coming of Jesus. He says, 1 John 2.28 says it simply, if you want to be ready for the return of Jesus and know that you will not be ashamed before him at his coming, then abide in him. Live in Jesus. Make him and not yourself the focus of your life. 
then no matter what hour Jesus comes for you, you will be ready and unashamed to stand before him. Now the question that naturally arises from a passage like this is, is John indicating that Christians can have shame or not have confidence when Jesus returns? Can a Christian who loves Jesus, who is born again, can they have shame or not have confidence when Jesus returns? I have to be honest, I don't think that's who or what John has in mind. I think the ones that John has in mind who will not have confidence and be ashamed at Christ's return are those of who John spoke of earlier in chapter two. Those who he said at the beginning of chapter two, those who have not remained, those who have not abided, those who have departed from the faith and they've departed from fellowship not just from the church, like Little C Church, but the church. They've left the church, and they no longer are confessing Jesus as the Christ. In fact, they would deny Jesus as the Christ. Sadly, as Doug pointed out, these people, at one time, maybe they made a profession of faith. Maybe they were doing the Christian thing or the church thing for a while. But now, for whatever reason, Whatever reason, they have left Christ's side. They've stopped remaining in him and they no longer profess Jesus as Christ and they have departed from the faith. And I believe what John is saying is that because of this, those who do such a thing, those who fall away is the biblical term, those who fall away will not be able to have boldness and confidence to face Christ at his coming. Listen, the Bible is is so clear there's several warnings to those who do not to those who do not abide or remain in Christ. John 15:5 might want to write it down. It says this, I am the vine, Jesus speaking here. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me, the one who abides in me, and I in him produces much fruit because you could do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. And they gather them, they throw them into the fire and they are burned. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, the writer of Hebrews says this, watch out, brothers and sisters. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away, that falls away, that departs from the living God but encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Listen to verse 14. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end that we had at the start. And then Hebrews 10, 35 through 39, the writer of Hebrews says, don't throw away your confidence which has great reward for you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and he will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. And then listen to this. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Bottom line is this, brothers and sisters. Remaining in Jesus is an essential mark of being an authentic child of God. It's an authentic mark of being a child of God. Our abiding to the end 
is confirmation of the reality that we're true children, and as a result, we can have great confidence and boldness when Jesus returns. So I have to ask, how's your confidence? How's your confidence? If Jesus were to return today, would you greet him with confidence? Yes, Lord, I'm so happy to see you. I'm so glad you're back. I'm so glad you're going to get rid of evil and sin, and you're going to take things that are upside down, and you're going to put them right side up, and you're going to judge evil, and you're going you're to clear it all out, and you're going to restore creation back to its original condition and before the fall. Thank you, Lord. I'm so happy to see you. Or are you going to shrink back? I departed, Lord. I denied you. I turned away from you. I turned away from you because of this reason or from that reason. I stopped following you. I departed from you. I turned my back from you. And I didn't just turn my back from you. I walked the other direction because I wanted nothing to do with you. Maybe you're here today because somebody invited you. Welcome to church. Glad you're here. I want to let you know that God is always willing and has his arms open to those who have maybe stumbled in this race and he always welcomes people to come back to him and you might need to repent and you need to turn back to him and come back to him because you realize if he were to come back today, you are not ready for him and you would shrink back not in, you would shrink back and you wouldn't have boldness and confidence. By the way, that word shrink back, it's always used in terms of the evil and the wicked and those who have just absolutely departed from the faith. And so if you're hearing this this morning, Jesus is inviting you, hey, come to me. I will in no means cast you out, anyone who comes to me. So distinction number one, authentic children of God abide in Jesus to the end. Number two, distinction number two, authentic children prepare themselves for Christ's coming. It kind of goes along with uh, what we were just talking about. Look at verse 29. John goes on to write this. If you know that he, speaking of Jesus, is righteous, you know this as well, that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be uh, has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And then look at verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Verse 29, John says it's only natural that those who have become children of God and partakers of God's righteousness, righteous nature end up living a lifestyle that matches his righteous nature. What does it mean to live a righteous lifestyle? Righteous, right? How many remember, is it Nemo? Something like that, righteous, the turtle. What does it mean to live a righteous lifestyle? It's simply a life that is lived in alignment to God's word. It's a life that is lived in alignment to God's word. A righteous life is a, a, a life that you realize God's word is the authority over your life. It stands above you, you stand below it, and you seek to follow it. You seek to practice what the word of God has to say. That is living a righteous lifestyle. As we live out God's word and we practice righteousness, and this affirms and assures our identity and status as children of God. 
And John says it so plainly, so clearly in this passage that it is a result of what the Father has done in and through us because we are born again. And later on in chapter 3, he says it's because his seed has been put in us, planted in us. This is a byproduct. This righteous life living in accordance to God's word is a byproduct of the fact and the reality we have been um, regenerated and born again by the Holy Spirit and the gospel has taken root in our lives and we are now his children. It's so important we understand this, that we are not born again by living righteously, but that righteous living is the spiritual outcome of being born again. The Bible makes it so clear that we don't become children of God by our righteousness. We only become children of God through trusting and following Jesus. John 1.12, the same John that wrote this epistle earlier wrote this in John 1.12. He says, but to all who did receive Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Becoming a child of God is a result of being born again, being born of the spirit. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, that very uh, self-righteous Pharisee and ruler in John 3, 7, he says, you must be born again. Nicodemus had this false understanding that because of his uh, relationship to Abraham and because of his uh, obedience to the law, well, that is what qualified him to become a child of God. And Jesus flips that all upside down and says, no, actually, it's not your uh, relationship to Abraham or your rule keeping to the law. You actually have to be born of the spirit, Nicodemus. But now that, that this new birth has taken place, John says that we now have this trajectory, this pattern of our life that is right living or righteousness. Now in chapter three, verse one, as John is talking about becoming uh, a child of God, in chapter three, verse one, it's almost as if he has to pause and he has to marvel at this wonderful status and privilege that people who were once objects of God's wrath are now objects of God's affection. That people who were once distant from God have now been adopted and brought into God's family and they have this wonderful, glorious, unearned privilege of becoming children of God. Chapter three, verse one, John says, it's like he's writing, he goes, oh, I gotta stop real quick. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children and we are, we are. Even though John is 80, 90 years old, he's still marveling and he's still awestruck at the reality that those who have put their faith in Jesus have become children of God. I love how the New King James puts it. It says, behold, John is writing to his audience. He's like, stop for a second, whatever you're doing, and just behold, stop, gaze, look, ponder that we are God's children. When is the last time you just stopped and paused and thanked God and praised him? Lord, thank you that I am your child, that I am a child of the living and true God. We are children of God and this didn't come from human merit. 
It didn't come because we cleaned ourselves up, but it came because we received and we believed in Jesus as Lord. And while God knows us as his children, John says the world considers us strangers and aliens. You ever wonder why maybe some of your coworkers, family members think you're strange and you're an alien? It's because you are. It's because you're God's child. And John, in his gospel, he says, listen, they didn't receive him. They didn't understand him. What makes you think they're going to receive and understand you always? As greater as our status is now as children of God, John says that we have even something so much greater to look forward to at Jesus' perusa, at his second coming. Look at verse 2. He says, dear friends, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. John is echoing what Paul wrote at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where, where Paul writes, for right now, this present age, this side of heaven, right now, we see only a, a reflection as in a mirror. But then we will see Jesus face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Scripture leaves a lot shrouded in mystery about our future as God's children and heaven and, and what that is all gonna be like. How many of you have ever had kids or uh, people ask you, is this gonna be in heaven? Is that gonna be in heaven? What kind of food's gonna be in heaven? Are we gonna play video games in heaven? Are we gonna take naps in heaven? You know, oh, is my house, my mansion gonna be bigger than your mansion? What about those who are like in the, the slums of, are, are there slums in heaven? Is it like you get more privilege here? You have the private estate next to Jesus? How many of you have had questions like that? There's a lot shrouded in mystery. One thing is certain though is this, that when Jesus returns, our future as God's children is a lot better than we could possibly hope or imagine. It's so much better than we could hope or imagine. According to Colossians 3, 4, it says this, that when Jesus appears in glory, guess what? You and I, as God's children, were, will appear with Christ in glory. Isn't that good news? Isn't that great hope for us? It, I don't feel very glorious today. Anyone feel glorious today? I, I don't feel too glorious this morning. Maybe tomorrow you wake up, don't feel too, it's Monday tomorrow, don't feel too glorious. The Bible says when Christ appears, we're gonna appear with him in glory, that these corruptible bodies that are so susceptible to sin, they're gonna, we're gonna put on incorruptible. We're not going to be drawn so easily to the flesh and the things of this world and to sin, that these bodies that are so prone to death and disease and decay are gonna be, we're gonna put on bodies that will never die, never have a disease, never face the hurts and the pains, you know, of the knees and the cracking of the, the legs and none of that. And, and we get this wonderful picture in scripture that while there's a lot shrouded in mystery, that what we have for our future is much more glorious and better than anything this side of heaven. As a response to all this, look at what John says in verse three. He says, the understanding that things are gonna be so much better then and so much greater then, it should inspire us to live pure lives now, holy and fully committed to Jesus, looking forward to the day that Jesus will return. 
The word purify here that John uses, it was often used in the Old Testament to speak of ceremonial cleansing. Cleansing yourself uh, to serve and to worship God. And when Jesus returns, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be worshiping him. We're going to be serving him. So John is saying, listen, if that's your future, prepare for your future now. How many of you have told that to your kids? Listen, I know you're only 15, 16, 17 now, but what you do now has ramifications for the future. Anyone tell your kids stuff like that? Yeah, and John is saying the same thing. He's saying, listen, uh, you have a future to prepare for. So start preparing for your future now by living pure lives. While the word makes it clear that we are children of God by no means of our own effort, but simply as an act of God's grace, it additionally makes it clear that as God's children, we are called, listen carefully, we are called, everybody say we are called, we are called to be proactive in seeking to live lives set apart for God as instruments of worship. We are called to be proactive. We're called to be proactive to live lives set apart for God as instruments of worship. Romans 12.1, a verse that so many of us have memorized, says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge, I plead, I beg with you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true act of worship. That verse, by the way, is steeped in the Old Testament sacrificial system. That just as the priests and the people would prepare themselves to approach God in worship, he's saying you need to prepare yourself, you need to be proactive to present yourself, your body as this living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. This is your true worship. I work with young adults and one of the questions I often get from young adults is can I be a Christian and fill in the blank? How many of you have had questions like that? You've fielded questions like that? Maybe you've asked questions like that. Can I be a Christian and fill in the blank? I was talking to Alex. I think she's here. Where's Alex at? Woo, yay, Alex. Okay. I was talking to Alex a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about this. Can I be a Christian and? Not that she was asking it, but she was like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why would any child of God, why would anyone who loves Jesus, why would anyone who's following hard after Christ, why would they say, can I be a Christian and? And she so wisely said this, this is the wrong question to be asking. We should not be asking how close of a Christian can I be while making questionable lifestyle decisions, but how close to Jesus can I be? How much this side of heaven can I become like my Lord? How can I set myself apart now for worship and service to God since that is my glorious future? How close to Jesus can I get this side of heaven? John is saying, pursue that. Pursue that life. Singly focused, living for Christ. And then as you think about the reality of Christ's return, Prepare for it now by the way you live. So, distinction number three. John says this, that an authentic child of God practices righteousness. He practices righteousness. Look at chapter three, verses four through 10. Everyone who commits or practices sin practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins and there's no sin in him. 
Everyone who remains or abides in him does not practice or continue in sin. And everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Verse seven, children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. And then verse nine, everyone who has been born of God does not practice or continue sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not practice or continue to do what is right is not of God especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. All right, church is done. You could go home. No, I'm just playing. These are some of the most sobering and powerful statements in all of 1 John, maybe even in all of Scripture. It's very sobering, aren't they? For some of us, it could cause some angst and maybe some confusion, and for others, maybe unnecessary condemnation. For others, though, They could cause conviction, and hopefully that conviction drives you to find forgiveness of your sins from Jesus. Let's remind ourselves why John is writing so we could understand what John is saying and what John is not saying. Remember, this letter, 1 John, was written. It was written against the backdrop of a false teaching called Gnosticism. It was a false teaching that was being brought into the church, and these false teachers, these false apostles were wrongly teaching the church that they could walk in fellowship with the Lord while practicing or living a lifestyle of ongoing, unrepentant, willful sin. And John's whole argument throughout this book is that God is light, and those who truly walk in fellowship or relationship with God will themselves walk in the light, not in darkness. And the reason, the reason why they will walk in the light is because they've been born again by the Spirit and now they are God's children as he has been talking about. It would be like this, saying that you tell somebody, I live where the sun is plenty. Southern California, right? Except last few weeks. I live where the sun is plenty, but in reality, you live in the inner recesses of the Carlsbad Caverns. Those two things are incompatible. I live where the sun is, but actually you live and dwell in the deepest recesses of the Carlsbad Caverns. And John is saying that those two things are incompatible. Saying that you have fellowship, relationship with God who is light, but you live, dwell, and practice unrighteousness and darkness, those things are incompatible. So real quickly, what is John not saying? This is so important for you to understand. John is not teaching sinless perfection. John is not teaching sinless perfection. He's not teaching that a Christian won't sin or fall into sin or be enticed by sin. Anyone sin this morning? No, don't raise your hands. Some of you are like, yeah, I tried to get my kids and family to church on time. There were some sinful moments involved in that. He is not teaching sinless perfection. That's why, remember in 1 John chapter two, Bill did such a great job. 1 John chapter two, verse one, he says, um, I write these things to you, little children, so that you may not sin. 
But if you do sin, because you will sin, we have an advocate for us, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, right? So John is not teaching sinless perfection here. The reality is, is that until Jesus comes to get us or we go to be with him, sin will always be present in our life. But John is not talking about the presence of sin here. He's talking about the practice of sin here. He's talking about the practice of sin, living a lifestyle of habitual, willful, ongoing lifestyle of sin. So to make this really uh, just to put this real clearly and real simply, in your notes there is a chart. I think we have that chart uh, of what we do have. John gives us basically in this letter an authenticity test. And throughout the letter, he is weaving these things in and out throughout his letter. And John says it so clearly in verse 9. He says, listen, I'm sorry, verse 10. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. How? By their relationship to sin. Because here's the thing, your attitude in your relationship to sin is a key marker on whether or not you're truly a follower of Jesus and whether or not you're truly a child of God. Go ahead and keep that chart up there, guys. Thank you. Throughout the letter, John says, listen, children of the devil make excuses for their sin. It's always somebody else's fault. It's never their own. They seek to hide their sin. Remember in 1 John 1, uh, he talks about never confessing sin. They love the sin. They're prideful or they gloat about the sin. They're comfortable in their sin. And they don't call sin a sin. The child of God, on the other hand, throughout John's letter, he, he makes a distinction. He says, listen, the child of God takes responsibility for their sin. I sinned. I did this. I got angry. I committed adultery. I committed idolatry. I failed you. I did it. They take responsibility. They bring it into the open and they confess it. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because John is saying, listen, as children of God, you have to understand, sin is always gonna be present and when, it's, when you commit sin, you have this advocate to go to, to confess to, to cleanse you, to forgive you. So you confess it. You bring it into the open with him and even as James says, with the church. We always say that James 5 is the most neglected command of all of scripture. Confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins because there is freedom, there is power, there's liberty when we confess to both God and to those who are trusted brothers and sisters. They hate the sin. They hate the sin. They don't love it. I remember when I first became a Christian, I thought I was gonna be perfect. It took me about a day to figure out that's not the case. And I remember going to my young adult pastor, I don't get it. I love Jesus, why did I just sin? He goes, welcome to the war, buddy. Welcome to the battle. He asked me a question, do you love your, no, I hate it. I hate this sin, I can't believe I committed it. Yeah, welcome to being a child of God because you hate your sin, that's a good thing. It's a good thing if you are a child of God and you hate your sin in here this morning. You grieve over your sin. It grieves you. You hate it. 
it bears on you. You, can't, you hate, you want to get rid of it. You don't want to fall into it. You don't want to succumb to it. It grieves you. Makes you miserable when you do sin. And you call it for what it is. You call it for what it is. We have such clever ways even in the church of trying to not call sin, sin. Well, you know, I'm an Enneagram eight. No, you're a sinner. <laughs> well, you know, on the Briggs, no, you're a sinner. I'm a S-I-N-N-E-R on the Briggs-Meyer test, sinner. Question for you, where are you at here? Where are you at? I know this is a very tough, challenging passage, and it's meant to be. It's meant to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And so my prayer is that if you're afflicted, you would be comforted and going, yeah, I hate my sin. I bring it into the open. I grieve over it. I'm miserable in it. I know that there's an advocate. There is a sin-destroying, sin-bearing Savior named Jesus who came to forgive me. I'm going to bring it to him. And there's a fountain of blood that is never going to dry out. It's always unceasing, and it's there to cleanse me and wash me. But on the other hand, if you're on that other side, that is room to be concerned. There is room to be concerned. I know it's easy to look at this list here and to say, well, I really wish so-and-so was here today. This is your test. This is your test, your 23andMe test between you and God. John says in verse seven, don't let anyone deceive you because the reality is so many are being deceived by this. So many, I believe in the church, many are being deceived by this. And here's why, out of a desire to overcorrect of the moralism and legalism that was so prevalent in so many churches in the 90s and in the early 2000s, where we swing against uh, living a righteous life, we go the other way and we just go, oh, you know what? No such thing as sin. There's no such thing as sin. And John would say, listen, don't let anyone deceive you. And I would add this, don't, don't deceive yourselves. So what is John saying here? He is not teaching sinless perfection. The presence of sin will always be with us. But the question is this, do we practice willful, habitual, non-repentant sin? Or, as verse 9 says, do we practice a lifestyle of righteousness? Look at verse 9, you guys. He says, everyone who has been born of God does not sin or continue to practice in sin because his seed remains in him and he is not able to practice willful, habitual lifestyle sin because he has been born of God. As Christians, we've been given this new nature. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we have become new creations. And because we are new creations, we now have new, a new trajectory, a new bent towards righteousness and towards the things that please God and the things that God loves. As children who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we have a new nature with a new lifestyle and new characteristics. Our life is spent wanting to please God, not wanting to please ourselves. Romans 6, in talking about this, Paul says that because we have been freed from sin, sin is no longer our master, we are no longer under its dominion, we have been freed 
to, from serving sin to now serving God as instruments of righteousness. And John says here in verse 10, the greatest way we could serve God in worship as instruments of, of righteousness is by loving our brothers and sisters. That is the truest manifestation and practice of righteousness is when we love our fellow brothers and sisters, those who have come to share the like trait of being born again. As I said, this is a pretty weighty passage, right? But did you guys see the good news in this passage? First John uh, 3, 5, what does John write? He says, Jesus came to take away sin. He came to take away sin. Jerry Bridges, an author who I love so dearly, uh, went home to be with the Lord a few years ago, says that Jesus came to remove sin's penalty, to remove sin's power, and one day he will remove sin's presence. Listen, the good news in this, this weighty passage here is that Jesus came to take away sin, to remove it, and he did that through his sinless life, through his substitutionary death, and by his powerful resurrection. He came to take away your sin and my sin. And not only that, but look at what John says in 1 John 3, 8, that Jesus came to destroy the devil's works. The Bible says that if we are not children of God, we are children of the devil. And Jesus came into the world as part of God's rescue mission to take us out of being children of the devil, to bring us into God's kingdom, to transfer us into his place of righteousness, and to give us a new family, new hope, and new life that lives out this new life. And John says, Jesus came to destroy those works of the devil. And so we're gonna celebrate good news this morning by participating in communion with Pastor Steve. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, that you would help us to remain, you would help us to prepare, and you would help us to practice, that, Father, we would live lives that reflect the reality we're your children. And I thank you, Father, that just as our children, when they fail, when they mess up, when they make a mistake, Lord, there is grace that abounds to forgive. Father, this morning, I pray that if your Holy Spirit convicted anyone here today, that they would bring that conviction to the cross of Calvary. I pray, Father, that they would be bold enough to confess their sin, to name it for what it is, to confess from it, repent from it, to get accountability for it. I pray also, Father, that we would be a church that loves broken people, sinners, who are willing to do that. Father, we don't wanna confess to people who won't remind us that there is forgiveness because of Jesus. And so, Father, I pray this morning that, that as your Holy Spirit probes our hearts and moves in our hearts, Lord, that we would just be reminded that Jesus came to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil and because of that, Lord, we have hope for when, you come, when your son comes back to be bold and unashamed, Lord. So we thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being called children of God. And we want to worship you here now, Lord.
In Jesus' name, amen.